This is an ABC podcast. We're going to build the wall. We have no choice. We have no choice. And we have to start by building a wall, a big, beautiful, powerful wall. But in the end, Mexico's paying for the wall. Build that wall. Build that wall. For weeks, thousands of migrants from Central America have been marching towards the US border to claim asylum. The procession is called the Migrant Caravan. President Trump has labelled them criminals. You look at what's marching up, that's an invasion. The caravan departed northern Honduras on Saturday, but it's caught the attention of President Donald Trump, who's threatened to withdraw foreign aid from Honduras, Guatemala and El Salvador if the caravan is not stopped. The large number of migrants arriving on the US-Mexican border do mostly come from El Salvador, Honduras and Guatemala. Known as the Northern Triangle, these three Central American nations have much in common. High poverty rates, income and wealth inequality, problems with gang violence, drug smuggling and weak and or corrupt political systems. The question, however, rarely asked is why are these three nations so violent, poor and corrupt? Is it because their people lack the political skills and ability to run a nation? Or have outside forces shaped and determined their current political and economic landscape? Hello, I'm Annabelle Quince and this is Rear Vision on RN. The United States has been the main political player in Central America for over a century. What's been the legacy of its influence and could its policies have contributed to the conditions that have led to the current migrant crisis? A question I put to Alex Main, Director of International Policy at the Centre for Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. Well, there's an enormous legacy. And of course, the U.S. has been intervening in that region since the early 20th century. You know, you can start really with military occupation of of Nicaragua in the 1820s. And then later on, during the Cold War, the U.S. became even more involved in internal politics. And in terms of the Northern Triangle, the U.S., for instance, was directly involved in the overthrow of the democratically elected president of Guatemala, Jacobo Arbenz, in 1954. That was a, a largely a CIA operation. And after that, the U.S. became very involved in trying to keep the threat of communism, as it perceived it, at bay in all of the Central American countries. But they focused inordinately on Nicaragua, El Salvador, Guatemala, and in Honduras, where they became very involved in bolstering what was known as the national security doctrine in the region, which involved counterinsurgency methods. On behalf of the rich oligarchy and backed by the fiercest army in the region, the Indians are being massacred. They are being cut to pieces as if the army has come to see them as animals. One of the few contemporary television accounts of the Western Hemisphere's most terrible 20th century atrocity was by ABC Four Corners reporter Jeff McMullen. Now, the people of La Sombra will tell the story of genocide in Guatemala. At the time, the Reagan administration dismissed such talk as wild exaggeration. The U.S. would be involved in training the troops of these countries in counterinsurgency methods that were really involved sort of slash and burn instilling terror in a great deal of, of the population, certainly 
areas of the country where there was deemed to be some sort of a communist threat. And you had an enormous amount of people were killed, many that had absolutely nothing to do with political activism. So this led to, of course, a deep breakdown within these countries of, of the societies there and enormous economic devastation as well, and to a first massive wave of refugees to the United States, from El Salvador in particular. And this occurred in the 80s and into the early 90s. Many of the refugees who fled the violence in Central America ended up in Los Angeles, and some of the refugee kids ended up involved in gangs. Anna Arana is a freelance journalist who has reported on organised crime for three decades. In the 1980s, you had a large number of immigrants move here. A lot of people came because of the war, and a lot of the parents came with their kids. The schools were not set up to really help these children. A lot of the children were from rural areas, and many of them had not been to school. So passing time, because they really... Schools were not prepared to teach a child who maybe was 14 but couldn't even count from 1 to 10. It all started with a small group of immigrants from El Salvador. They didn't come here as gang members. They became gang members. They created themselves on the streets of Los Angeles. The Mara Salvatrucha, or MS-13, that evolved in Los Angeles, it was young, uprooted Salvadorans that were very impoverished and, you know, were very vulnerable and looked for protection and so on. And the gangs, which were very influenced by, of course, the warfare their members had endured while young in El Salvador, sort of reproduced sort of violent tactics that they'd witnessed and experienced. And we saw these gangs emerge. In 1996, the U.S. government decided to confront the spreading menace of gangs like MS-13. Congress passed new laws that allowed the deportation of non-U.S. citizens for even minor criminal offenses. So they deported several thousand young men back to Central America, mostly back to El Salvador and then Honduras, and they were actually, they went to several other countries, but the larger number was from Central America. When we deported our MS-13 gang members back to the country of origin, whether it was El Salvador, Honduras, or Guatemala, we put highly educated gang-wise gang member in a country where they became a big fish in a little pond. At the beginning, the U.S. government never told the local governments about this youth had problems. And I remember meeting some of them at the time, and they were basically American kids from a ghetto, yeah, but they were American kids who didn't understand, didn't speak the language, and they were pretty much just thrust in these areas where they were sent to live with distant relatives. There were no jobs for them. Still now, it's a big problem for gang members to get jobs. And they basically went back to do what they were doing here in the U.S. So they formed their cliques and they engaged in local petty crime. And so this group became intensely powerful in the three countries. Their power appears to be limited primarily to more low-income areas of these countries. Their power does not appear to stretch deeply into the political realm and certainly not at very high levels. There you have, of course, another issue, which is that of 
organized crime primarily around drug trafficking, but also human trafficking. And this, of course, involves the cartels, cartels that for the most part originated in, in Mexico, but that have spread south into Central America. The cartels definitely wield a great deal of political influence and also resort to very violent methods. But in, in these countries, in many cases, with the cooperation of state security forces that are very much infiltrated by these organized crime groups. So we're no, no, no longer talking about the gangs, but we're talking about, you know, more powerful organized crime groups, these cartels that are deeply entrenched in many of the institutions of these countries, certainly very entrenched in, in Honduras and just about every day, there are new revelations of high-level officials in Honduras, both from the security forces and from the government that are implicated in, in the drug trade, for instance. And at the same time, these are countries where we're seeing more and more militarization of law enforcement, which carries with it, of course, the, the enormous risk involved when state security forces are corrupt and are receiving direction from organized crime groups, often groups that are whose interests are enmeshed with those of, of local elites in these countries. According to Laura Carlson, director of the America program of the Center for International Policy, the U.S. government's war on drugs led to an increase in cartel activity and corruption in the Northern Triangle nations. Ironically, when the war on drugs is launched in Colombia and then in Mexico and then spread to Central America, what it does is it spreads cartel activity, where you used to have a situation where the giant cartels would just run drugs through the countries to get them into the lucrative U.S. market. You begin to see with the war on drugs a splintering of those cartels, and the cartels, the smaller ones, are, are bloodier and they prey more on the host communities, on the communities in the countries in Central America that they travel through and the countries in the uh, regions in Mexico as well. We've seen an increase in violence with the supposed war on drugs to control violence. So now there's Mexican cartel activity in these countries, and now we've got the brother of the president of Honduras who's been indicted for organized crime activities in the United States. So it's, it's a mess. The U.S. has a security initiative called the Central American Regional Security Initiative, which basically bankrolls the militaries of those countries. David Bacon, independent photojournalist and the author of numerous books on globalization, migration and Central America. The officers in those armies are invited to the U.S. to attend what used to be called the School of the Americas, and now it has a different name, but it's the same institution, in which they are taught not only military tactics, but they are taught that the military has a political purpose, and the political purpose is to prevent what they would call destabilization. In other words, any kind of social change that would threaten the powers that be. The U.S. is sort of trying to influence the way of thinking of the militaries in, in these countries and using 
the money that it supplies to do that. And the pretext for doing this, of course, is in large part the war on drugs. The U.S. is saying, well, you know, these these countries are routes for the drug traffic coming up from Colombia and South America, and it's the only the military that is capable of suppressing it, and therefore we are going to support the military. And so the you have U.S. support for militaries that have extremely bad human rights records. General Kelly, who was the head of the U.S. Armed Forces for Latin America, became the chief of staff for President Trump in the White House. So the people involved in implementing this policy are in very, very powerful positions in Washington. Since October, huge groups of migrants have been fleeing the so-called Northern Triangle, the violent, crime-ridden states of Honduras, El Salvador and Guatemala. Donald Trump says they're a threat to national security, claiming they've been infiltrated by terrorists and drug traffickers. This vicious gang has transformed once peaceful, beautiful communities that I know so well into blood-stained killing fields, savagely murdering, raping, and mutilating their victims. Central America is terrorized by gangs. They extort businesses, pay off police, and force children to sell drugs. So I talked to many people in the caravan along the way, and the stories were remarkably similar, although there are differences in the national context. Many of them were fleeing direct death threats. It was a life or death situation for them to leave, some of them from one day to the next. The majority of these death threats come from gangs. Uh, In the case of one man, for example, Walter, who's a taxi driver in Tegucigalpa, the capital of Honduras, he was having to pay extortion money to four different gangs every single week. He had hardly anything left to go home with. And he knew that if he failed to make a single payment, they'd be on his doorstep armed and ready to kill him for it. So one day when he found out this group was leaving, he decided to join the group and leave with them. Or Wendy Rodriguez, who's from La Ceiba, which is the African Honduran part of the country on the Atlantic coast, who has a 15-year-old son. And when her son refused to join one of the gangs, they beat him up brutally. She was forced to move to another city, an island off the coast of Honduras. And it seemed like it was a little bit more peaceful there, but eventually the gangs found him there as well. So she decided to join the caravan. You're with Rear Vision here on RN. I'm Annabelle Quince. The other major factors cited by refugees from El Salvador, Honduras and Guatemala are unemployment and poverty. Approximately 3,000 Honduran immigrants are marching toward the land of opportunity. We have to leave fleeing, fleeing from our country, where we have to be able to get ahead and that's not happening. We have to look for other places where we can get ahead. What's happening economically? And are any of the various trade deals like the Central American Free Trade Agreement, which came into existence in 2006, what part do they play in the sort of economic problems they're having? Well, certainly there is more and more criticism, I think, of the models of development that have been applied in many of these countries. 
And as you said, it's not their geographical location that sort of condemns them to economic despair. You have, uh, for instance, Costa Rica that's doing very well, Panama that's doing relatively well. Both are neighbors to the Northern Triangle countries. So on the one hand, with the Northern Triangle, in the cases of El Salvador and Guatemala in particular, you have, of course, a legacy of, of war, a very recent legacy of war, where you know these countries really only began to pacify and stabilize and eliminate the internal armed conflicts in the early 90s. That brought a lot of economic problems to these countries. But then the development model that's applied, one that's very much promoted by the World Bank and the Inter-American Development Bank, typically involves solutions that reduce the role of the state in the economy and that seek to open up these economies as much as possible to foreign direct investment and see foreign direct investment as a panacea. And of course, to attract this investment when you're a very poor country, the best thing you've got going for you is extremely cheap labor. You know, essentially these countries bet everything on being able to attract foreign capital through their cheap labor. So this really meant a deregulation of, of the labor market, no real controls on, on capital inflows and outflows. And of course, this set these countries up for possible disaster should they experience economic shocks. And real disaster because, of course, if investors are allowed to very easily put money into the economy and then very easily recover it and take it out, then they will do so. And this happened in a major way when China entered the WTO and these countries were not able to compete with similar products, particularly in the, the garment industry. You know, you saw a real outflow of capital during that time. And at the same time, none of the jobs that were being created with the investment that had existed up to then really produced decent jobs with decent wages that people could really live on. It's a model that hasn't worked well, and there are other elements of it as well, such as systems of land reform that have led to concentration of land in the hands of agribusiness and the displacement of hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of small farmers in the region. Of course, they've drifted towards low-wage manufacturing jobs, that really haven't been a solution for them. And these jobs just don't offer the sort of living conditions that anyone would want to have. And it's very understandable that these people would want to leave their countries to try to find something better. And I think more and more people are realizing that it's a model of development that's just not working for them. Um, San Pedro Sula, for instance, a, a big city in Honduras is referred to as the murder capital of Central America because there are a lot of killings. But San Pedro Sula is actually a factory town. Until the 1980s, the population of this of this town was, was quite small. And then there were industrial parks that were built in part with U.S. support and funding for big U.S. garment companies. And they attracted people to come into the factories from the surrounding areas. And so for a while, the factories were going. You know, the pay was very poor, and people worked very, very long hours in these factories. 
factories, but at least they had jobs. And then the garment employment in those factories dried up. The companies moved their production to other countries mostly, which left an enormous number of people living in San Pedro Sula without work. And so that kind of poverty and unemployment was sort of the breeding ground of the violence. That's where the violence came from. Both Mexico and Central America have free trade agreements with the United States. And what we've seen since that happened is a change in the economic model so that the state no longer plays a role in distribution of wealth, no longer plays a role in helping more vulnerable sectors, no longer plays a role really in development which was, of course, fundamental for rich countries. Everything is left in the hands of the international market, so there's an emphasis on attracting foreign investment, which means keeping wages low, and it means giving foreign countries access to natural resources, whether it's from oil, which was recently privatized here in Mexico, or mining, which has taken over whole communities and now is concessioning a huge part of national territory in all of these countries, or other mostly extractive industries that are based on raw materials. The result of this is inequality, greater inequality than there was before. You can talk about a certain amount of millions of dollars that comes in international investment, but what that's going to is buying off the resources that the communities had control of and used before. And this is especially true in the case of rural and indigenous communities. So we're seeing a displacement from those communities where what passes as development is actually responsible for expelling many of these people from their communities because they no longer have a way to make a living. Their farmland has been converted to mining operations where they're not the ones who are hired. There's battles and conflicts that can often be deadly as indigenous communities try to protect their communities from uh, the incursions of mining companies or their water sources contaminated by the industrial or the mining operations in their area and then who can no longer live off farming or fishing. You know, it's a, it's a widespread process that's directly linked to the immigration we're seeing and it's directly linked to what's called the neoliberal model of economic development that has been imposed on these countries by a series of often illegitimate governments that are manipulated and then used by capitalist interests in the United States in particular in this region. And the military coup which removed the ruler of Honduras has brought protests and international condemnation. Police used rubber bullets, tear gas and batons against protesters who were demanding the reinstatement of President Manuel Zelaya. The White House described his forced removal as illegal, warning it would set a terrible precedent if the region returned to the era of military coups. One of the problems of Honduras is that the Honduran people elected a government when Obama was president named Manuel Zelaya, who basically proposed a program of very kind of mild reforms. He was going to raise the minimum wage. He said he would make education free for young people in Honduras. Um, reforms like that. If those reforms had been carried through, it would have been much easier, much more possible for a young person to grow up in the Tegucigalpa, the capital of Honduras, or San Pedro Sula, one of its big cities, and have some kind of future there. But he was overthrown in a coup. The U.S. recognized the coup government. 
And that military coup d'etat was never opposed sufficiently by the international community. And so instead of returning the elected president, it went straight into a series of post-coup governments that inherited the illegitimacy of the original coup in 2009. And most recently, there was an illegal re-election of the president. He shouldn't have gone up for re-election because it's prohibited under the Constitution. And he lost that election, but instead of recognizing that he'd lost the election, there was a fraud carried out. It was supported by the United States, directly by the embassy, and he's still in government. And when you talk especially to the Honduran migrants that are in the caravan, they're really refugees, they will almost always mention the fact that their country is in the hands of what they call a dictator and that it's become more dangerous and it's become more impossible to survive economically as a result of those political processes. And then even one thing we've noticed a lot too is that even in governments that are more center-left, this reliance on the extractivist economic model, where it may not be quite as capitalist as uh, the northern countries or as the United States, and they do seek to reduce dependency on the United States and to create more South-South ties, but there's still a real reliance on a, on a neo-colonial model of commodities and extractivism that ends up having the same displacement effect and the same devastating environmental effect as it does in the more capitalist countries. So unless more progressive governments make a firm commitment to really changing an economic model to one that's sustainable and to one that takes into account uh, people's needs beyond just bringing dollars in, we're likely to see that same push factors for the rates of immigration that we're seeing now. I'm wondering why is it that the US has been prepared to support non-democratic governments in those countries? Certainly during the Cold War, you could see why. But when you get to the coup in Honduras in 2009 and the various sort of fraudulent elections since, I'm wondering what does the US have to gain from that kind of policy? There certainly is a debate within the US foreign policy establishment over US policy towards these countries, and particularly Honduras. Many Democrats, I think it's been essentially Democrats, that have criticized U.S. policy, not just under Trump, but also under Obama, because it was under Obama that the U.S. helped the Honduran coup succeed. I think from the point of view of the U.S. governments, the interest has to do officially with being involved in these countries in order to try to bring about democratic positive change, to try to help these governments strengthen their institutions and reduce, you know, human rights violations and so on. The problem with this official line is that, of course, it hasn't been working. In Honduras, it hasn't worked at all. Things are a great deal worse than they were really after the 2009 coup. So the U.S. strategy of engagement there has really been a failure. But I think beyond sort of the official explanation that you get, there are other explanations. And in Honduras in particular, Honduras has been a strategic ally for many, many years. It is the host of 
what is essentially a U.S. base. It's not officially a U.S. base, the base of Palmarola, but it hosts uh, hundreds of U.S. troops with a reach from there to the Caribbean basin and to the Andean region as well. And the U.S. Department of Defense, I think, has been very engaged with the Honduran military, has trained probably all of its senior officers. And of course, it's these same senior officers that carried out the coup in 2009 and that have seen a lot of human rights violations under their purview. And then I think finally, there's an ideological element that's also played a role where they believe that democracy is suitable so long as it produces the results that go along with U.S. interests in the region. Alex Main, Director of International Policy at the Center of Economic and Policy Research in Washington, D.C. My other guests, David Bacon, independent photojournalist, Anna Arana, freelance journalist, and Lauren Carlson, Director of the Americas Program of the Center for International Policy. The sound engineer is Russell Stapleton. I'm Annabelle Quince. And this is Rear Vision on RN. If you're listening to Rear Vision as a podcast, why don't you check out our back archives? We've been on air for over 10 years, so you'll find most of the main news stories covered. And just one more thing. Would you mind commenting or rating us with your podcast server? That way, others interested in history and more than just the headlines will be able to find us. Thanks and keep listening.